Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, if you didn't know, today is Father's Day. So um, I guess to all of you who are fathers, happy Father's Day. Um, And to all of you who forgot that it's Father's Day, if there's anybody that you would like to say happy Father's Day to, um, or perhaps there's some other stuff that maybe gets drummed up. Well, we're going to attend to that today. You see, there has been nothing more potent or refining in my life than the entrance into fatherhood. I didn't really expect the emotions to be so visceral. I had this, uh, this thought that perhaps when my child was born that I would be the person who was like weeping uncontrollably in the delivery room. That wasn't me. Uh, it was a different set of emotions and some of those like really intense emotions came later, but altogether it was unexpected. I, you see, I, I was trying to think about how do I, how do I capture this? So I, I came across this image. And so this is, in my mind, what I thought fatherhood would look like. It was more or less this. This. Ah, there we are. Just like this Instagram-worthy, idyllic scene of a father holding a new-ish born child. I mean, isn't this amazing? This is like the quintessential father pick. And I I mean, though this may be staged for affirmation on Instagram or whatever, you know, there's something beautiful about it. And I thought this is what it would look like. But when reality came to bear and the tranquil moments kind of give way, I think that this is actually what fatherhood looks like. That is exactly what you think it is. Um, And notice the smile on the child's face. That's poop coming right on out there. Nice and... Yeah, that's gross. Let's just keep this up here for a moment so you can get this picture. Um, See, it's when you put these two pictures together that you begin to get the reality of fatherhood over the ideal. You can take it down now because I don't think they're going to hear anything else. (laughs) See, I think what's telling about that picture is that that's just a few weeks into life. There's very little communication taking place from that small human. There's a lot of nonverbal stuff. You know, your like attachment bond is forming between the, the caregiver and the child. But really, it's like at that moment, at that moment, you still have, at least as in my memory as it serves me, like this deep well of love that can withstand even the worst of blowouts. It's like there's something enduring in that moment, but there's something that shifts. And sometimes it shifts rather rapidly. Sometimes I think a little bit slower over the course of time where that poop, that crap is less literal and more metaphorical, but still like you as a parent, you as a father, you get to be the one who takes the full brunt of it. And often it's quite surprising, but I think that that is where the beauty of fatherhood, like fatherhood and all its glory comes in that spot. It is both the idyllic and beautiful scene of holding and embracing and the one where you are literally getting sprayed with the stuff you never want wanted to be on your body in the first place. And I think what, what comes to my mind when I look at those pictures is that um, fatherhood draws out the best and the worst of us. 
similar to community, but with like increased proximity, so increased measure, the parent-child relationship, it exposes our anxiety. It exposes our need for control. It exposes all of the stuff that we have grown quite good at keeping under wraps. But it's, it's there in that place, in our fear and our struggle to trust, that we begin to see who we truly are. At least that's what I saw. And, and many of you, you're like, I'm not a father. I don't have the, the biological parts to be that. Um, I, let me just say this. I'm not trying to call fatherhood a crapshoot. That is, that's my, that, these are the jokes that I'm bringing to you today, by the way. Um, it's far from that. It's not just a romantic scene, you know, that moves toward legacy and joy. It is a both and. And on a serious note, when we begin to talk about fatherhood, um, it, it can like rake the dregs of our hearts and bring up all of these uncomfortable emotions. Because in the absence, if you're living your adult life, like most Americans separated from your family of origin, then, then the stuff hasn't been kicked up in a while. Uh, our, our, one, of our, one of my dear friends, she uh, gets to see her family regularly and will often recount how just going home, like there's conversations she avoids. She will not talk about certain things because she knows it's just gonna kick that stuff up. But for some of us, that sediment is quite thick. And so on a day like today, when a person like me, a pastor, starts talking about fatherhood, all of a sudden you feel that stuff coming up in you. And John Tyson, in his work on fatherhood, where a lot of this content is drawn on, and I'll recommend his book, it's called The Intentional Father, um, he likens fatherhood to kind of the sciatic nerve of the soul. And I, I think in some sense it goes across genders because um, when your sciatic nerve is functioning, I'm, I'm not like a person who knows a lot about anatomy, but uh, my understanding is this, that when it's functioning well, it, you're mobile. You don't even notice that it's there. It's just a given. You're like, yeah, my life is going well. But when your sciatic nerve or the sciatic nerve of fatherhood is inflamed by guilt or shame, it leaves you almost immobile. It has this, this capacity to literally debilitate your body and radiate pain throughout it. See, you may be a father in here today, and you may be plagued by guilt or shame over the frequency or the ferocity of your anger. Like, where in the world did I have this deep well of anger? And, and that's not me trying to project my stuff onto you. That's all just a hypothetical scenario. But father or not, like, you may think about fatherhood and be deathly afraid that you will repeat the sins of your father in your life, in your friendships, in your community, or maybe in your parenthood. See, what happens here is that there is a cluster of emotions that come up. And, and though today I do want to lean into fatherhood, I, I think that we all have something that God wants to like open us up to because through his personal presence, through the Holy Spirit, God is like leading us, laboring in love to reparent us toward Holy Communion. I chose the text that I did today because yes, it touches down on something that I think we need to hear, but it also opens us up toward one another in a unique way. So yes, I do have a word for men today, especially those who are father, but I believe there is something for all of us because again, we are being reparented by God through the Holy Spirit into Holy Communion. 
And what I've noticed is like over the last decade of ministry, a lot of it which puts me in like this, this interesting pastoral relationship with people is I have yet to meet a person whose life has not been shaped both positively and negatively by the presence and absence of their father. Commonly, we just talk about this as a father wound, but even if you had an amazing father, there's baggage that we carry. There's a type of deep soul ache that we have. And my, I, I, I'm not trying to diminish mothers here. I, I'm not trying to cast dispersions on you or your father or any of that. I, I just want to point out the, like, the power, the formative power of a father. And for some of you, this is just rhetoric, so I need to give you some data. I've learned a little bit about you. You need, you need to, to catalog this information. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau in the most recent uh, census, there are 18.4 million children, that's one in four, who are living without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. Just to put that in context, that is enough children to fill Los Angeles four times over. That is a huge swath of humanity in this country. There is a deep ache in us and around us for the parental love of a father. And just to get a sense of how acute the, the power of fatherhood truly is, just listen to these trends observed by researchers. Uh, they've observed this, when, when tracking the corresponding challenges that are experienced by the absence of a father, this is what they've found. Uh, in, a, in a father's absence, there is a fourfold increase in poverty. There's rising infant mortality rates, there's increased obesity, rising dropout rates, and in the long term, it's increased incarceration and criminality. I mean, these are like staggering statistics. And conversely, in the presence of a father, those aspects, the, the idea of poverty and obesity and mortality and dropout, like in incarceration, all of those drop. And then fatherhood, the presence of a father buffers against other challenges. See, my point is this, that fathers have the power for good and for ill to shape how we relate to and live in the world. I know that Father's Day can easily just be like set aside, or at least in the Midwest, it's like a day where you grill out or you, I don't know, like you leave dad. I don't, I don't know what that looks like for you and your culture and your, like the culture of your family and family of origin, but it can be commercialized. My hope is today that we would like move beyond the commercialization of fatherhood and allow it through the Lord's Prayer to break open a type of blessing in us so that cycles of harm could not just be stymied, but in the name of Jesus that they would be stopped. Like I just, I think about this community and when I think about the potency of a community who is willing to like name the value and virtue of men who are willing to lay aside their good for the, for the, like, for the community, not, not like, I'm not talking about toxic masculinity, like get under me. No, I'm talking about like, what does it look like for a community to be built up in love? That is my ambition today. That is why I wanna draw your attention again to Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. See, when Jesus opens his mouth to teach his disciples how to pray, um, the orienting words he offers to anchor their hearts are what? what? What are the first two words in this teaching text? Our Father, let's just get this a little louder, a little interactive here. Come on. Our Father. 
And these words on a regular basis, they bring me to my knees. Now, I'm on the cusp of middle age, which some of you are you're frustrated that I say that because that means you are old. Just reckon with it. I mean, it's, it's true. So we're, like, I'm in my 30s. I'm in middle age. This is reality. But I am just now beginning to feel the ability to utter these words with some sort of comfort and confidence. For years, I would come to this, these two words and I would just bypass them. I, I, I didn't even know how to metabolize them in my heart. I could say them, I could recite them, I could memorize them, but they didn't actually get into me. Because the truth is that these two words, our Father, they can make the air thick. And for some, that thickness, it settles on you like a, like a healing balm for a wounded soul. But for others, those words settle something thick in the air like an oppressive heat. It's like you just can't get out of it. It makes you sweat. And I think what's so curious about these two words is like our, our social location. Social location is something sociologists talk about. It's our time in human history. So we're in 2023. Here we sit in the aftermath of Me Too and in the midst of toxic masculinity. These are um, inflammatory terms that reflect a bit of our reality. So here we sit in the aftermath of that and to talk about fatherhood. Like I've just noticed this general hesitancy, if not outright refusal, to begin to discuss the virtue of godly, humble, sacrificial men as if mentioning manhood is tantamount to like upholding the patriarchy or something like that. And I, I know I'm like treading on, I don't know what people would say, thin ice right here. I want to be attentive to this. But as followers of Jesus, I think that we need a way to damn the brokenness and release the blessing in Jesus' name. We need a way forward. And I am of the mind that these opening words, they actually provide a pathway to do such a thing. They provide a way to reorient our hearts toward God in such a way that our lives and our communities and our families might begin to be shifted. And that cycle of harm could be broken. I, I, like, this is not my notes. There's a lot that is, is going to be left unsaid. If you see me getting animated or anything like that, that is because over the past few years, this has broken loose in me. Like, I, I, I didn't know that I was passionate about, like, men's ministry, which I actually don't, I, that's a whole other conversation. I just didn't know I was as broken as I am. And I also didn't know that the Father's love was so fierce that it would move into my brokenness, meet me there, and to my surprise, remind me that God has been present to me in my pain the whole time. So if you, if you hear some intensity behind these words, it's be, because th there is. But I, what I want to do here is I want to set a little context for just how revolutionary these two words are. You see, when you turn to the Old Testament, you know, maybe you're in your Bible reading plan and you're like in Joshua or something right now, like what you will encounter in that place is a different word, a different reality to orient you towards God. And it is the word, it is the name, the covenant name of Yahweh. In Exodus 34, when God announces his name over Moses, this is, this is what God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. This is the covenant name of God. And this is beautiful. This is grand. This is extravagant. There is no other God like Yahweh. 
A God who would disclose God's self to somebody who would, would be willing to like hide Moses in the cleft to pass before him. You can only see my back. You can't handle the whole thing. Like this is God. And what we hear in Exodus 34 are not mere characteristics of God as though Yahweh is simply compassionate or gracious or has the capacity to be patient. Those are all true, yes. But when we hear Exodus 34, God announce his name over Moses, this is who God truly is. He is compassion. He is grace. He is patience. Or as Jesus is like the, the disciple who calls himself the beloved disciple, he'll remind us in the New Testament that God is love. This is not an aspect of God's character. This is foundational to who he is. Like God is that. The reality of love stems and flows from who God is. So too with compassion and grace and loyal love and faithfulness. This is simply who God is. And what's so curious is that when Jesus comes onto the scene, something shifts. Like the, like the reality of the heavens is made manifest in flesh and blood here on earth. And I, I, I don't think that words suffice at this point. So I'm just like asking that the Holy Spirit would like stir something up in you because something happens. When Jesus invites his disciples to pray, he invites us beyond the grandeur of Yahweh into the heart of the divine to our Father. And my guess is you've heard a sermon like this many a times over. I've taught on this very, like I actually went back through all of my teachings and I'm like, oh, I've taught on this thing. And like I focused on our father and I said similar things. Let these words wake you up. Because there's tension here. And maybe this, is, again, is just me projecting something, but I think there's tension in many of us. You see, there's this uh, psychological term, it's called transference. Transference is the psychological term used to describe the phenomenon when somebody like redirects emotions and feelings, usually unconsciously, when someone redirects their emotions and feelings onto another person. Perhaps from an earthly father to our heavenly father. See, to put it plainly, to take up Jesus's prayer and to pray our father, it can just feel overwhelming. Now, this may not be true for you, but because it, it might be true of someone in this community, it ought to matter to you. Because remember, God's call to us in Christ is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then what? To love our neighbor as ourselves. So if someone's heart is like blocked because they carry a deep woundedness in their soul, according to like this dominant metaphor of the body of Christ, that would be tantamount to like your knee is like all seized up. I, I remember this was a little, Jessica, when she's pregnant, she gets these uh, Charlie horses, she call them, which I was like, that's weird. But apparently it's like where your muscle just like kinks up. And the other night she was like, ah! And I'm like, oh dear Lord, like what's taking place? Um, Charlie horse. Like imagine if there's a part of your body that is seized up in pain and grief and lament and bitterness and you're just like walking around like, no, we could work. <laughs> no, you're not good. Like you need to attend to that and love. I don't know what you need to do to that. Drink more water, wait for it to pass, do something. Like, but there is something here. Like when we pray this, it does something in us. It can be overwhelming, especially if you carry those wounds, especially if there is like the contours of deep hurt in your pain, in your story. 
And so let us not miss the fact that the God Jesus calls Father is Yahweh. And he invites us not to just pray to his Father, but to our Father. See, to pray as Jesus invites us to pray, it will chafe against our pain, past, present, and likely future. But as is often the case, it's like the cleansing of the wound that leads to the healing. And it is painful. And again, if you're like me and you have like this type of relational baggage, then you might have found it easier to relate to God as Lord. Like for whatever reason in the architecture of my mind, I can relate to God as Lord and Master far easier than Father. Jesus says, I, I no longer call you friends, but like, like brothers, you're in your family. And that's like, I don't know about that. Like that just, I, it makes my tummy feel funny. It just, I, there's something about that. And yet, if I want to reckon with this, then I, I get to receive Jesus' words as true. I get to receive this prayer as a pathway to healing. And for this reason, I just think that you and I, like we need a framework to parse fatherhood here in the natural so we might make sense of how to relate to God as heavenly father. So that we might receive healing and our wounds might become scars so that we might damn the brokenness and release the blessing so we can finally experience the peace on offer in God. Again, John Tyson, he offers such a framework in his book, Intentional Father, where he kind of maps out five types of fathers. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk us through these. And I share this framework not so that you can use these to then like accuse your dad. Like, yeah, you're an irresponsible father and you like, can give him a piece of your mind today. No, no, no. I'm, I'm doing this so that we can name our brokenness and we can release it to God rather than project it onto God. Does this make sense? If it's not, hopefully it will in a second. Here, here's how Tyson breaks this down. He says, first, there is the irresponsible father. Uh, this is uh, functionally the, the sperm donor. Uh, it, it conceives life, walks away without any regard for the sacred duty in front of him. This is uh, someone who doesn't really have an idea of what just took place. Selfishness is the binding reality of this person. Then you get the ignorant father. This is somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing. They don't understand childhood development or stage theory. Not that you have to understand those things in their fullness, but have an idea like, oh, my child is crying, therefore they need my attention. They have just no idea. They live in ignorance, and to them it is bliss, but for the other people it is a type of pain. Beyond the ignorant father, you get the inconsistent dad. This is the, the, the person who is torn by uh, personal ambition and the brokenness of their family of origin. They're, they're torn by like a career and a desire to be a good dad. I think the quintessential figurehead in, uh, is, is Anthony Bourdain. If any of you know him, like Parts Unknown, uh, like all the shows, I don't know. I, I liked me some Anthony Bourdain back in the day. Um, sad that he took his life. But what happened in the wake of his, of his suicide is that... Um, they made a documentary and there's this quote from one of his friends who talks about how torn he was. Like he wanted, he had children later in life and he wanted to be this good dad, but he was torn by this ambition. And when he couldn't live into the ideal of fatherhood, he retreated into, a, into his work, into distraction. And there was a deep shame there. That's the inconsistent dad. Then you get the involved dad. I think that the involved dad is your, like, is your good dad. They go to the games, have the sex talk. They, they do this stuff. They show up. 
This is, and, and I'll just say this, like if you've had a good dad, like if you're like carrying those things and you're like, yeah, that was my dad, you have been disproportionately blessed. Like do, please receive that blessing, name it as such. But there's something ab about the involved dad. And Tyson makes the case that in, in the way of Jesus, so that is like a life with and in Jesus, it involves you, it invites you beyond involvement to what he calls the intentional father. Because the involved dad understands parenting. He understands the, the call of fathers to shape their children generally. This is like principles and wisdom. Raise a child up in the way they should go and you, they shall not depart from it. But what the heck does that even mean? Like what does it mean? Raise them up. How? Like do you know the imagery of being raised up actually comes from Roman households? The father would have a child brought to them. And if they wanted to keep the child, they would raise them up. But if they didn't, they would put, they would not touch them. They would not look at them. And then they would be put aside. They would be put out in the practice of exposure. So what does it mean to raise up a child in the way they should go? Like, what the heck do I do with that? Well, the involved father takes those principles, takes wisdom, takes life hacks, and then says, okay, I'm just going to apply these principles to my children. But in that, they, what Tyson would say is that they fail to see their child in the midst of history. They, they, they fail to see their child with their unique disposition and personality, how they fit into their family. They don't study where they will be, but rather assume these principles are timeless and true. Conversely, the intentional father sees their child notices their personality, observes what they value, and then encourages them. They love their child. And it's not to say that any of the other fathers don't love their children, but the intentional father is calling them into blessing by naming it over them, listening to what God would have for them. And this is my point in naming this framework, is like all of our fathers fall somewhere within this. And I submit, when I first encountered this, I felt exposed, I was angry, I felt left wanting, and I, I felt exposed because I thought, like, not because I, I thought I sucked at parenting or something like that, but I just, like, I didn't know if I wanted to be seen by God in that way. It was exposing. I, I, I felt angry because of the abuse and neglect of my own father. I, I felt left wanting because I didn't really know where to start. See, in, in all the gaps that we've experienced with our earthly fathers, and, and will continue to, whether small or large, tragic or traumatic, Jesus invites us to open ourselves to the one who can fill those gaps, who can actually heal our wounds if we will let him. He will bind up our brokenness. This is the one who Jesus calls Father, the one that we're invited to pray with. In two simple words, Jesus invites us to the one who is eager to damn the brokenness and release the blessing. He wants to be with us, to shape us, to love us. And as far as I can tell, this is the great gap, to see and be seen by the God who we can call Father. See, the truth is this, and this is what we must reckon with this morning, wherever we are, is that we actually can, by some measure of grace and time, receive healing. And that God looks on you as somebody who's worth healing. Like, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, maybe this sounds like a broken record, and this is like I'm just trying to lay out my greatest hits or something like that. But as God looks on you in Christ, he says, you, you bear my image. You, I want to call you daughter, son. You, I want to bring you in to receive my healing love. And so often, we 
parent. We do relationships. We enter community from a place of pain. And we say things like, I will never fill in the blank. I will never do X, Y, or Z. My mom or dad did this. I will never do this. My friends did this to me. I will never do this. But that, that is moving into community, moving into relationships, moving into parenting from the place of pain and not as, not as one who is receiving healing, but that is to say that pain is still defining those relationships. Friends, th- that is not freedom. That is bondage to the pain. That is not healing. That's living in the brokenness. Think of the healing on offer in the Lord's Prayer. I'm not just going to give you two words. We're going to get a couple more here. See, after we recognize who we're talking to, after we regard God as Father, and then we, we actually hallow His name, we reckon with the reality that He is holy, after we contend for His kingdom to come and His will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, after we call upon heaven's blessings, you know what we're invited to do? We're invited to relinquish our hearts in forgiveness. You know the line, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I have uh, been estranged from my dad for more than a decade. The closest I've gotten to him is writing a letter of forgiveness that I never mailed because I don't know where he is. I may at some point move from forgiveness to repair and reconciliation, I don't know. I don't even know if I want it. So I'm not coming to you today as somebody who's like, God has poop in a pile. That's funny because of the first image, poop in a pile. Um, I'm just saying like, this is a process, but the invitation is real. When we come to God as Father, we can draw upon the resources of heaven to release others into forgiveness, just as God in Christ has released us. Henry Nouwen, the, the great spiritual writer, he has this to say in the matter. Just, just If you've not listened so far, drink in Nouwen's wisdom. He says this, to forgive another person from the heart, from the center of who you are, is an act of liberation. We set that person free from the negative bonds that exist between us. We say, I no longer hold your offense against you. Just press pause right here. I want, I want you, if you're willing, to draw the person in your mind. Maybe it's your father. The thing that, that you're holding them captive in. I will say the words. You can say them in your heart if you feel like you're open to it. But imagine this. Imagine saying this. Dad, I no longer hold your offense against you. Now one goes on that there is more. We also free ourselves from the burden of being the offended one. As long as we do not forgive those who have wounded us, we carry them with us, or worse, pull them as a heavy load. The great temptation is to cling in anger to our enemies and then define ourselves as being offended and wounded by them. Forgiveness, therefore, liberates not only the other, but also ourselves. It is the way to freedom of the children of God. Come on. The way to freedom for the children of God. Like in the mystery of forgiveness, God somehow transforms our deepest pains into portals of grace. Uh, Imagine taking the energy 
Imagine taking all of the energy of your hurt, all of your bitterness, all of your scheming, all of your anger, and redirecting that toward redemptive purposes. Imagine asking God's spirit to animate all of your bitterness and then to release it into blessing. Imagine determining in your heart that you will not pay for the brokenness. See, there's something that I learned in therapy over these past few years is that when you feel angry, you like it. Do you know anger actually feels good in your body? When you're angry, you have a neurobiological feedback loop that wants you to get angry. Here's how you know this. If you've ever been in a little altercation and somebody comes to you with intensity and you're like, this is my language, maybe not yours. This is my interior. I'm being vulnerable here. Come at me, bro. Usually there's a lot of like F-bombs involved in that. Like, let's, and I don't know, something, right, and maybe you're not like a fight person. Maybe you're a freezer or like a flea. But for me, it's like, Let's do, like, like it actually feels good. Endorphins, chemicals get released in your body, but God wants to release something more than just chemicals. He wants to release you from the bondage of that. You know, James will say, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. But damn, it feels good, doesn't it? God wants to give you something more than that. He wants to give you his love to transform that into a blessing. The, the scriptures talk about heaping burning coals. We read this this past week, heaping burning coals on your enemy when you love them. Like when you bless them and do not curse them, outdoing them in love. This is the way of Jesus. It's easy to perpetuate the cycle of harm. We actually cannot love without God loving us. We need him to animate us in our bitterness, to flip the script. But imagine determining in your heart that you will not pay that forward, but through divine partnership, you will damn the brokenness and release the blessing. See, I have been convinced in my life and the testimony of others in this room that when a father sets his heart toward this end, that heaven's wind begins to blow at his back. And it is difficult, yes, but somehow grace begins to well up in us. And it's as though there's patience that we didn't have a measure of before. It's as though God is actually working with us. There's courage to disrupt that pattern. God loves to renew the broken. A lot of, I've seen like this shirt, Josh is wearing it right now. On the back it says renewal. And then there's this cute little parenthetical thing, like it's renew all. It's, I don't know if you've noticed that, but whimsical, Kate, maybe. Um, God loves to renew the broken. And if you pretend that you don't need renewal, you are a liar. Straight up, we need this. And God's saying, our Father is the entrance. If you don't believe me 33 minutes in, I'm sorry. Um, let me keep going. See, this, let the scriptures bear witness. I'm not going to read these passages, but just let King Josiah bear witness to you. King Josiah likely releases one of the greatest renewals in all of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, do you know Josiah's grandfather? was probably the most evil king in all of Israel's history. His, Josiah's daddy, his, his dad, was assassinated by his servants in the palace. Why am I sharing this? Because God loves to renew the broken. You see, 
it's unfruitful to measure our hurt against another. That's not what, try, what I'm trying to like do here. Like I, I, I want you to see that there is actually a way forward in the face of your brokenness. Allow Josiah to bear witness to you because when you read the account of his life, you find that Josiah set his heart to seek the Lord. He set the center of who he is to seek Yahweh. And how? The nation was so far off a path of godliness that he had no reference point. He couldn't look to his father. He couldn't look to his court. He couldn't look to his grandfather. So you know what he did? Do you know what he did? I'll I'll tell you. He looks back in his legacy and he says this. He says, I will seek the God of my father, David. David had a jacked up life. We know that. I know like one of my dear friends, she actually like has a hard time reading David's account because of all that. It's like actually like a challenge for her to follow God because of David, because he's a man after God's own heart, but he was quick to repent. Saul sought his own way, but David bore his heart in repentance. He prayed that God would not take his spirit from him. Like when Josiah thinks, who can I cling to? It is my father, David. I will seek God like him. But God in Christ has come closer than David. He's come closer than a far off king. He has come to us as our father, our heavenly father. God is more than an intentional father. He is the creator. And practically what this means is that if you have no godly reference in your life, or you have a crummy one, or even if you have a good one, that there is more on offer in the way of Jesus because Jesus holds out the offer to come to your heavenly Father so you might be with Him and washed by His love and then live in kind. See, to talk about fatherhood often devolves into like a, a talk on basic principles. It's, it's the raise up your child thing. It's, it's basically technique without teeth saying here's what you do, but it doesn't attend to your heart. And so whether you come into fatherhood by choice or circumstance, it is a sacred call. If I've noticed anything that's come into my heart, it's like, oh, there is like a a battleground. Tyson will say, um, and I've found this to be true, that, that the enemy of our soul one of the things, like if our fatherhood like illumines the goodness of God in our, in our moments, like if we give good gifts to our children, how much more does our heavenly father give, gives, give good gifts to those who ask of him? Like if it's somehow a mirror, an inflection point to reflect his goodness, wouldn't it be advantageous to the enemy of our souls to destroy that? Let me just say that this sacred call, if you don't already know it, it will expose you. So you can't do it alone. Like I actually think the discipline of gathering together as church is so that we can receive one another and spur one another on to receive God's love as Father. And I don't know why it is that the people that we love the most get the worst of us. Maybe it like all boils down to the psychology of safety or something like that. But there's something beautiful of like the family unmasking the unbridled self and all its glory and all its gore. Like we need more than technique. We need the love of our Father in heaven to heal us today, to damn the brokenness, to release the blessing. And so I want to put it to you. Um, I won't be able to do it for much longer. I want to ask you like, will you join God in his work in you?
Like, will you let him in to heal you? Will you join God in damning the brokenness, receiving the healing, and so that he might set your heart in such a fashion? Have you ever seen somebody who has a, a nose that got broken and didn't quite set right? Played hockey for a lot of years. I meet these guys, their noses are like flattened to the side. You're like, oh, you played hockey for a long time, didn't you? Yeah, something about setting our hearts right to allow God to do that. Like, will you join God in this work? I feel like pressed to like, like give an answer, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I hope that this, this passage like haunts you for the rest of your days. So C.S. Lewis puts it like the goal of life is to get out of yourself and into reality. It's not to live in the ideal, but to get into the stuff. And so if you would say yes, if you would want to situate yourself in reality to allow God to bring the healing into your brokenness, uh, then let me just help you to that end. This is brief as we close. I just want to, this is reality. According to Richard Rohr in Adam's Return, which is maybe one of his only good works, uh, that is me throwing shade at Richard Rohr, just to be clear. Maybe I need to, I'm sorry, I can, that's not, don't, let's move past it. Here's reality. He calls this the, the five essential truths. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. You're going to die. Adam's return is about rites of passage. What does it mean from boys to become men? He reckons that these are the five essential truths that, that boys need to learn and reckon with, that life is hard, you're not that important, your life is not about you, you are not in control, you're going to die. And if you're like, well, that sounds kind of harsh on Father's Day, Kyle. Um, yeah, but what, are you, what else are you going to say? You're going to be like, life is easy. It's actually all about you. Um, well, you are the center of the universe. Everything is in your, the domain of your control. You've got it all together. And by the way, you'll live forever. Do you know who thought like that? Peter Pan. You know what happened in the 90s? Helicopter parenting. You know they have something different than helicopter parenting now? It's called snowplow parenting. You don't have to do a thing. They just push everything out of the way. Calling college professors. This is real. This is reality. Uh, but I think that Roar is missing something, as is often the case. Darn it, I did it again. Um, so I'm so sorry. I'm, I guess I'm feeling feisty right now. These are true, but they're missing something. They're missing the context of the gospel. See, when the gospel is, is embedded in these reality, I think they, they, become point, they become potent. When we allow our Heavenly Father to transform these truths into gates of grace, according to Tyson, and this is where they go, um, from ease to difficulty. Like what we would do well to, to reckon with is that life is not easy, it is difficult. So we embrace the difficulty. This is something kind of funny. This, is, uh, this one's for free. Um, Eli, you'll appreciate this. Like testosterone like, makes difficult things hard. Um, video games give you a false sense of accomplishment. Go, keep playing video games, I don't really care. But let me just say like, we need to move from ease to difficulty because life is hard. To embrace difficulty is a pathway. From self to others, like this is about giving ourselves away in love. From the whole to a part, this thing is not about you, but you have a part to play. From control to surrender. I, I actually have realized in, the, in these recent years that I like to fight. 
it's kind of odd because I'm like a pacifist theologically, but then I like want to fight. I don't, I'm still trying to reckon that. Um, it's a little disjointed. But there's something about surrender. Like if you just like YouTube Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, one of the beautiful things about it is like, is like it's, you're trying to kill somebody is basically what's happening there, but then it's all about tapping out. Like there is actually a kind of mercy in that. It is from control to surrender, from temporary to the eternal, allowing the reality of God to break into the presence, to allow, there, there's this line from Dallas where, where he says, eternity is now in session. That is reality. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You're not in control and you're going to die can be refashioned by the love of God into something where beauty breaks into the present. Fatherhood is not romantic, and yet it is beautiful. It is difficult, and it is all the rest of it. I know that there are fathers in this room who carry heavy burdens in your story, and I know that each and every one of you, father or not, like that you need healing. Our Father is interested in bringing you to that place of healing. And so to close, I just want to offer you two things. First, to pray. Again, I hope this prayer haunts you for the rest of your days, that you cannot but get past those first two words. You actually, maybe all you know of the Lord's Prayer is our Father. And if that was the case, how beautiful that would be. But I hope that what it does is it gives you a place to just like move into that time of prayer. Like if you are a man and you have children, what if you just took one minute for each child a day to pray for them? That's like 30 minutes a week. All of a sudden, like what you're doing is you're valuing, you're valuing consistency over intensity. You're allowing that to build the cumulative weight of that to like build up a cascade of grace over them. You're breaking the cycle of harm. I could keep talking about this, but I think you get the point. My hope is that in that simplicity of prayer, you would know that God is damning the brokenness and releasing the blessing through you. You can actually do that. And the last thing is this, is to love. Again, this comes from Tyson. This basically is me teaching his stuff. So thank you, John Tyson. Listen, observe, value, and encourage. If you like to take notes, you can write that down. That is uh, for free from Tyson. To listen, to, like, to pay attention, to attend, to observe, like wh where are they? And this is not just for fathers to children, from boys to men, that kind of a thing. This is, that's funny, it's like an R&B reference. This is like a whole community thing. This is to listen, to observe, to value, to actually like put your phone down and be attentive in love. And lastly, to encourage. This is the call, the sacred call. And so would we pick it up?